Happy Monday morning, Pear Shorf and some retrogrades. Today, I'm going to be talking about this vexing and perplexing question. Who denies, if anyone, that the Novus Ordo mass is invalid? The answer may surprise you. And to be so doing, I will be joined by the eminent Phil Lawler of Catholic Culture Blog. Also, Phil is the author of uh, uh, another Sophia book in 2021. Phil, thank you for joining me. Can, can you introduce yourself and your book from 2021, Contagious Faith? Sure. Um, myself, well, you just introduced me. So um, the book, Contagious Faith, was my response to the closing of the churches during the epidemic. Uh, I was appalled by it. I couldn't understand how... Uh, our church leaders would turn off the sacraments at a time when we needed them. And I make the argument in the book that actually faith is what we need more than ever in a time of sickness. And the response was just, it was terrible. It was wrong. Is it fair to characterize your position as um, tending toward over the, the, the latter half of the Francis pontificate anyway, Tending toward the view that there's there's maybe a bigger and bigger problem. I don't know if it's an ecclesiological problem, but but a problem in the curia at the top than you recognized in the first half of the pontificate. That's not much of a stretch. That's no stretch at all. I, the only question I'd have about the way you characterize it is how you divide the pontificate. I, it was fairly early on that I became uncomfortable. And yep. by the time Amoris Laetitia came out, I realized that the confusion in the Pope's statements, as I put it, it wasn't a bug, it was a feature. Uh, and he has been, Pope Francis has been uh, a disaster. How's that? I like that. Uh, I mean, I don't like the fact that he's been so disastrous. But I, I, I do like the fact that the disastrous nature of this pontificate has now caught the putative wind, if you will. I, I mean, I, was, I remember when Laudato Si came out, I wrote, um, I think, a good critical analysis of that document, really, really probably written more by Jeffrey Sachs than Francis's own hand uh, by portion. And I couldn't place it anywhere. I couldn't place it with any of the, any of the even you know, now voluble uh, esteemed venerable institutions of Francis cr critique that uh, people would associate with it. Sometimes that, you know, these, these places have outlasted and outranked my critiques of the pontificate at this point, and they go further saying things like Francis isn't even Pope. So there, there tends to be within the world and within Catholicism, a kind of, uh, I don't want to call it a pendulum effect, but a slow to uh, react, but fast to overreact um, tendency. Do, do you know what I mean? Where like, again, I couldn't in 2014, 2015, when I saw the writing on the wall real clear, real early with Francis's pontificate. I couldn't place a, a moderately voiced uh, critique of Laudato Si, even at the, the very right wing institutions. But then, you know, a few years later, once everyone catches on, then they're trying to outpace each other going further and further. Saying, I see what you're saying. Yeah. 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 And I, I guess what you're getting at uh, in your earlier question, it's true that very early in the pontificate, I was favorably disposed. And I'm not ashamed of that. I, I didn't know very much about Pope Francis. 
Uh, and I think it's, it's natural for any Catholic to be favorably disposed to the Pope. Uh, I was favor certainly favorably disposed to his predecessors, although I wrote critically about them from time to time. Uh, but the evidence just kept piling up to the point where I realized I couldn't defend what he was saying. And again, it was, it was really a Morris Letizia that broke the camel's back in my case. Yeah, I, understandably so. I mean, that was, that was the, uh, the kick earned around the world. I, I'm going to be thinking about that, that um, throughout the course of this interview, and maybe, maybe we'll come back to it. The question, is a Catholic, you know, is it incumbent for a Catholic to be favorably disposed toward each pope? Or, or rather just the office of the Pope. There's, there's an argument, I think, to be had for each, um, each well, of those iterations. But, but in the meanwhile, let's get to the topic at hand. You wrote a, an amazing piece. It's, it's not just tongue-in-cheek, though the, the title is. Very thoughtful, well-done piece. I congratulate you on it for uh, Catholic culture um, called Who Denies the Novus Ordo is Valid? Prepare for a Surprise. When I saw that title, by the way, Phil, um, clever though it was, I knew who you were referring to, which is, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it to you, the 70% of Novus Ordo attendees, I think that's a conservative estimate, I've heard is up, up to 90% of Novus Ordo attendees, who do not believe in the real presence at the Eucharist. Kick to you. Well, I wasn't the only person who made that point. I just spent 800 words on it. Uh, <laughs> you know, the only thin rationalization for traditionis custodis is the allegation that traditionalists are dividing the church because they don't believe in the validity of the Novus Ordo. Now, there are certainly traditionalists who take that position. They're in a minority, um, but you can't help but look at the Novus Ordo and see the 70%, as you say, that's probably a conservative estimate, uh, who poll after poll say they don't believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. Well, if you don't believe that the mass confects the Eucharist, then you don't believe in the validity of the mass. Uh, so that suggests to me, it doesn't suggest to me, it almost proves to me that 70% of the people uh, attending the Novus Ordo don't believe in the validity of the mass that they attend. Now, it doesn't bother them, and that doesn't make it any better. <laughs> but but no. it is suggesting they don't believe it's valid. Right, right. I mean, you, you note this in the article that they're not aware of the fact that they are denying the validity of the Novus Ordo. They might not understand what validity means or Novus Ordo means, a lot of the attendees there. But that's not the point, is it? No, it's not. And just by the way, let me make this clear. I am not saying that I deny the validity of the Novus Ordo. I don't. I went to a Novus Ordo Mass this morning. That's my typical morning. Uh, and it pains me to think that people uh, who go to the Novus Ordo Mass don't recognize what they're doing. And it's an enormous failure of catechesis. And by the way, part of the catechesis is in the liturgy, you know, but I mean, we can get into that later, but sure. there are uh, at this point, a majority of American Catholics who don't know what the mass is. Uh, and so how, well, 
to say that traditionalists are divisive because they don't recognize the Novus Ordo is you're, you're straining at a fly and swallowing a camel or whatever the expression is. Yeah, I, your take, fair or unfair comparison. The claims of Traditionis Custodis are much like common sense Catholic gun regulation and, and what uh, the, the analogy means out of the mouth of my friend um, Boss, who sometimes comes on the show is common sense gun regulation punishes the law abiding and on the basis, on the justification of the sins of the non-law abiding gun users and let's go free the non-law abiding. And that, that's precisely what Traditionis Custodis does, according to one construction of it, uh, with regard to the, the legal Latin mass lovers. And it lets off, holy Scott free, the illegal Latin mass lovers, the ones not going to fully licit uh, versions of the mass. What do you say about that? I think you could take that in a couple of different directions. Uh, First, you could say, if there is a problem, or insofar as there is a problem with traditionalists who deny the validity of the Novus Ordo, then let's address those traditionalists. That's a problem. Let's address that problem. Let's not punish all of the people who uh, go to the traditional mass because they love it, because they find it spiritually fulfilling and refreshing in a way that they don't find the same sustenance in the Novus Ordo. Why punish them for the views of a minority? But I, I guess more to your point, what we're seeing is a huge, uh, a huge level, uh, well, a crisis of faith. And the crisis of faith is most manifest in the Novus Ordo communities. And that's the more dangerous problem uh, where, <laughs> not only the crisis of faith, um, but related to the crisis of faith, the abuses in the Novus Ordo, which are legion and ubiquitous almost. Yeah. Uh, you know, to say that we have a problem with tra- the traditional mass at a time when I never know where I can go to mass when I'm traveling out of town. I never know what I'm going to encounter in a Novus Ordo in a typical parish. Uh, it's it's unfair to me as a traveler, uh, and it's just a manifestation of how very far we've come uh, down the road to liturgical chaos, and it hasn't been getting better. Uh, so you know something ne- something needs to be done, and. I'm not sure about the gun control analogy. I'd have to weigh that a little bit, but uh, it's the wrong fight to pick at a time when, when there is a fight on our hands. Uh, indeed, indeed. Just look, 70 to 90% of those attending the forcible new mass, you know, um, don't believe in the validity of the source and summit of the faith, you know, the, the, very, the very telos of the mass. Uh, the Christ in the Eucharist. So that expresses it wholly on, on one side. But I, I want you to react then to the other side because there's very little space amid all the noise in the church. I don't want to call it left-right noise, even though I, I normally like the left-right comparison, but noise from 
you know, people that, that love the Latin mass, like you and like I, and um, on the other hand, noise from the people that have defended the, the worst iterations of the Novus Order, which is almost all of them. Um, so the other side says this, basically, there's something, in, I mean, the, the, the rad trads who have, I'd say, grown in number some. You know, they say, look, Vatican II's documents were problematic facially, even though, you know, even the conservatives at the council, even Lefebvre, you know, who, who was is their leader in many ways, even though he signed them, that which would suggest otherwise, that facially they were fine. And as applied, the problems began, be that as it may. They will say that somehow there's something in between a facial and as applied category of problem with the Vatican II documents, including the one which gave us in, in a very early iteration, the new mass. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so they'll say there's something besides being licit and being valid. And you're like, what, what is it? It can only either be valid and not licit or neither valid nor licit. And they will typically respond to you by saying, oh, there's got to be some third category which would produce this crisis of faith, Phil, that you refer to, this crisis of faith where most Novus Ordo goers don't believe in it. And I say no. I, I say I think it's really, really, really clear what's going on here. I think I'm writing this, this book called uh, Bad Council, Good Documents. And it's the, the events before, during, and after the council were bad. The spirit of Vatican II began before it. And, and took place during it, at, you know, the walls of the Gregorian Pontifical University. So it was going on before, during, and after the, the, what's problematic in the council, only it wasn't reflected in the four corners of the sacred constitutions, leastways not enough to create what we would call a magisterial problem. And that's really, really clear. And that, that answer that I just gave is unsatisfying intellectually to both sides of the equation, those who love the Novus Ordo, those who don't love it. I'm in the latter category, but I, what's wrong with that answer? And what do you make of, of that answer? That they knew what they were going to do with the vagaries of the mass, the new mass and all the other documents, and they did it. You know, I, I have a new piece up on the Catholic Culture site about how... Um, it wasn't the, tra the traditionalists who seduced me away from love of Pope Francis. It was Pope Francis who drove me to the traditionalists in a way. Yeah. Um, and as I explain in this piece uh, that's, that's on the, the Catholic culture site now, uh, I was one of the people who for years would say, look, Vatican II is fine. It's the interpretation of Vatican II that's the problem. It's the abuses that, that, that are the problem. And that became more and more difficult to, that position frankly became more and more difficult to defend. Um, Pope Benedict threw us a lifeline saying that you have to, the, the hermeneutic of continuity, that you have to read the documents of Vatican II uh, in, conjunction with constant Catholic tradition. And so if something is out of whack with constant Catholic tradition, then that can't be the proper interpretation of Vatican II. Okay, that's, that gives us a way to, to live with the tensions there. 
And I noticed during the pontificate of Pope Benedict that there were two categories of people who rejected uh, the hermeneutic of continuity and they were uh, the radical Catholics on one hand and the traditionalists on the other. Uh, And I thought I was holding some valuable middle ground. Well, along comes Pope Francis and now we have the sovereign pontiff saying there is a radical rupture with Vatican II. And that makes it almost impossible to hold that middle position. I mean, I also was one of the people who was calling for the reform of the reform. And now Pope Francis comes along and slams that door shut. Uh, it's forced me, and I'm, I know I'm not alone. I know another, a lot of uh, thoughtful Catholics who were pretty much in the same position that I was in 10 years ago, who are moving in the same direction saying, you know, at this point, we really have to take a look at those Vatican II documents and understand where are the time bombs? Well, I suppose I should say, where are the the landmines? Where are the landmines or are there landmines? Are there aspects of the teaching of Vatican II that need to be at least clarified, if not actually corrected. And uh, more and more, I find the answer to that has to be yes. There's a uh, book by a fellow by the name of Philip Trower that came out, must be at least 20 years ago, who has what I think is a very apt description of what was going on at the council. And if, if I have a minute to to spell it out, it's, it's a sort of visual image. Uh, can I do that? You have enough time to? <laughs> yeah, sure. We got plenty of time. All the time okay. in the world. Uh, like Edmond Dantes and Chateau d'If, we got all the time in the world. <laughs> okay, well, picture this. You're up on a hill overlooking a road that goes along the ocean. And you see a car going along that road and then the car stops, it becomes obvious to you at a distance, the car is broken down. And four men get out of the car. And two of them, uh, I'm sorry, they all start pushing the car. Uh, There's a rest area and it makes sense that they would be pushing it to the rest area. But then when they get to the rest area, two men run in front of the car and they're pushing it backwards while two other men are still pushing it forwards. And it looks to you up on the hill as if those two men who ran around and are now in the front of the car are, are harming the progress of, of a mutual endeavor. Uh, but in fact, the two men in the back, their aim is to push the car off the cliff into the ocean. And I think that that's, that's what happened at Vatican II. We had people at the council uh, whose plan for the church was, was radical was revolutionary, uh, was subversive of the Catholic faith. And we had others who did not recognize in time the aims of their colleagues. And then after the council were saying, well, wait, 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 that's not what we meant. Uh, They were probably um, too accommodating in approving the language of the documents that included those little landmines Uh, I suppose Archbishop Lefebvre would be in that category that he was willing to go along with other bishops out of goodwill and didn't recognize the damage that was 
likely to ensue from those documents. And, and of course, the people who were out to change the church radically at Vatican II also had um, the sympathy of the mass media. Uh, so that most of the people out there in the real world who have never read the documents have read the sort of New York Times CNN version of the documents, which is surprise, surprise, compatible with the editorial goals of the New York Times and CNN, which is not very healthy for Catholicism. I agreed, Phil, but here's, here's the thing. The middle ground that um, you're describing it, it. It's more like a geometric mean, not an arithmetic mean uh, to use the Aristotelian parsing. It, it's closer to one side than the other. This, this middle ground is much closer to the rad trads than to the people that love the Novus Ordo. It's um, it's, I think not what you've and most have assumed that the middle ground is uh, l- let me, let me lay out a picture. I, I like the analogy uh, that you just described and it, and it works. But let me show you where I think the misunderstandings in here, if that's okay. Yeah. There, there are three levels to uh, a ratified constitution. Okay. There's the intent behind them. Um, then there's the text. Then there's the implementation. And uh, I, I recently did a show on what a ratified constitution is, sacred or secular, what a ratifying convention is. It's a different kind of of document fundamentally I, I urge everyone to go see it it's one of the last videos i've done two two videos ago and um whether we're talking about ratification convention like uh summer of 1787 in, in philadelphia and then summer of 1788 all the individual state ratifying conventions or any ecumenical council which is a sac- uh, sacred uh constitution ratifying convention that's all the councils are there's a great misunderstanding in the Catholic world among the, the normie Novus Ordos and with the traditionalists as to how, just how a ratified constitution is a sui generis type of written document. It's not like a periodical or an op-ed piece or a, a fiction novel or a nonfiction. It's not like any of those, um, even, even co-authored ones, because it's a unique type of co-authorage where... The, the one or two guys write it, James Madison, with some help from James Wilson, writes the Constitution. But then he seeks co-authors and the document isn't reified until co-authors join. Right. And that's what ratification is. They're signing on the bottom line and making it a thing. Right. Um, so ratifiers of a Constitution actually become authors such that um, the solution to all of this problem this sort of compound problem of the Vatican II documents, hermeneutic of continuity and on all the rest, which really applies to all ecumenical councils, all sacred constitutional ratification conventions, you know, all of them, all 21 councils. It doesn't just apply to Vatican II. Is, um, is the late great justice Antonin Scalia. Let's go through those three aspects. The intent behind um, Vatican II, which I do believe among many of those parties in power was evil. Uh, then the text, texts, and then the implementation, which, which was clearly evil. See, I, of those three things, I agree. It's not just the way that too many people who defend the hermeneutic of continuity are always saying, oh, it's just the implementation that was evil. You're saying, no, I, I, I've, that's not true. 
It's also the intent. Absolutely. The intent was evil on one end of the sandwich and the implementation was evil on the other end. But what's that middle ground in the text? I mean, literally the middle part of the sandwich. The text is everything in the constitutional tradition. And by the constitutional tradition, I mean, lowercase c, we're, we're, we're Catholics, so we believe in sacred constitutions. That's all the magisterium is, right? That's, that's all ecumenical councils are, all 21 of them, is sacred constitutional ratification conventions. And Catholics don't study constitutions, so they don't understand this, but the text is everything. So now I bring you to the late great Justice Antonin Scalia, who says, look, there are two forms of originalism, which is the, the jurisprudence, which captures it all. There's a correct one called textualism, and there's an incorrect one uh, championed by the philosopher of language, Stanley Fish, called intentionalism. It's very simple. With a ratified text, a constitution, textualism is correct. The original public meaning of the words is correct original meaning as ratified in whatever year, you know, 1963 in the case of uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, 1788 in the case of the U.S. Constitution. Um, that's original public meaning that usually in, in constitutional circles, we debate over what's the meaning of original, you know, can, is it, is it living and breathing all that in sacred constitutional circles? When we're debating Vatican II, the more important load-bearing part of original public meaning, textualism, is public. So public meaning is the word's common usage. It's precisely such that a cadre of revolutionizers couldn't get together, use some you know, private meaning, privately agreed upon meaning, foreordained meaning, like I think they did the radicals who had the evil intent at Vatican II, they couldn't just get together, use a, you know, a tertiary or a quaternary meaning of some of these terms, and then later implement that tertiary or quaternary meaning, sidestepping the primary or secondary meaning. You see what I'm saying? So, so under textualism, assuming, assuming that the late great Scalia was correct, even though two-thirds of these steps of Vatican II were bad, the intent and the implementation, if the text, the original public meaning of the text is good, there, there aren't actually time bombs, even if there are some, some weak spots there um, that between the bad intent and the bad implementation could be exploited. The text is fine. And that, it turns out, is what we always defend from all 21 ecumenical councils is the text of the constitutions. Now, the Scalia, uh, sorry, the, the Stanley Fish intentionalist version of originalism uh, is what both the uh, hermeneutic of rupturists on the left that like the new mass and the hermeneutic of rupturists, the rad trads on the right, dislike. And that is, uh, uh, they're the ones that give this intentionalist read, which is the intention of, I guess, the few bad actors who have the muscle that really governs the meaning. And that's, that's, that's dead wrong. And we can use Scalia's arguments now to say, no, the original public meaning of the text, even with bad intent, is still the original public meaning of the documents that we must carry forward. And that's the correct sense of the hermeneutic of continuity. So can you respond to that? This is the book I'm writing right now for uh, Tan, by the way, but that's, <laughs> okay. yeah. It, it looked, sounds like an interesting book. The, um, there are, 
there's a lot to wrestle with there. Uh, first of all, uh, an ecumenical council is not like a constitutional convention in that what comes out of the council is not the constitution of the church. We already have that. Uh, well, the constitution of the, the council. We have four sacred constitutions. I'm not saying it's alike. Not an analogy, by the way, a species to genus relate. We literally are, I mean, it is literally nothing other than a ratification convention for constitutions, declarations, and decrees, which are basically constitutions. So I'm okay. not even saying like, I'm saying it is a species genus relationship. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I'm still going to make the same point, which is um, as much as I love Justice Scalia, I was not a huge fan of his approach to the constitution, the originalism, because I think that there is there are always going to be problematical as aspects of any written document. Of course. Uh, there are going to be points of contention about what the document means. And when those points of contention arise, you have to be able to fall back on something prior, uh, something saying, uh, you know, this, this can't mean uh, that there aren't three persons in one God, for instance. It, it can't mean that. So if and similarly with the U.S. Constitution, but I don't, I don't want to get into those weeds. Um, well, that's where, that's where we, we consult the, literally, there's always something prior. The original public meaning, and you, what, what you do when you check that out is, uh, you know, they, these guys in 18, 1787 said the word gay. Does that mean, if we, if we operate on some sort of intentionalist read or some sort of non-textualist read, we'd say, oh, does that mean... Uh, you know, 2022's definition of gay, all, all Scalia's system of jurisprudence stands for is the simple idea that there's always the prior agreement, the minute, the second, the nanosecond that a bunch of people reified a constitution, sacred or secular, by getting together and saying, I sign my name to this. We have a quorum. We have a document. If we don't have two thirds or some supermajority, we don't have a document. I forget what the quorum is for for sacred constitutions, but um, so we that that means when we consult, what did they mean when they said gay? They meant happy, right? Because it was 1787. So you go either to you know Blackwell's legal right. de a dictionary, you go get a dictionary from the time. There's always something prior. That's precisely what textualism recurs to uh, is is something prior. Whereas on a intentionalism or some other form of non textualism. There isn't something prior. You're going and you're saying, oh, well, the document says gay. So that's living and breathing, even though this would be a, at best a pros-hen equivocal, usually just a strictly equivocal meaning with respect to the text. You're like, well, they, what did the ratifiers actually ratify with the document? The ratifiers, the textualism is, I think, unassailable from this perspective, that when you're saying, look, a constitution is just a group authored, a special kind of a group authored document. That's all Sacrosanctum Concilium is. You need, this is not going to be a thing unless some number out of the 2,000 uh, potential ratifiers sign it. It's, it's, you know, no means nothing. You know, one vote short means it's not a thing. One vote uh, above that means it is everything. So that means that when we go back to say, what is the meaning of the document? Where does the meaning of that document in here, Sacrosanctum Concilium? is the meaning of that. It's very, very important. You can't just sidestep around this issue. What is the meaning of Sacrosanctum Concilium? Is it the new missile 
that that Paul VI gave in 1970. No, it's not. Um, so we're not actually attacking Vatican II. We we could say when you go to what were the original public meaning of all those words, there are no bad clauses in Sacrosanctum Concilium. I'm not saying that because I like the new mass. I'm saying that because we have that document that was ratified in 1963 and the original public meaning without even too many vagaries in that document um, clearly said, you know, chant is still supposed to be the main thing in the new mass. Well, I don't see that. They just ignored it. It says that, you know, it never, never abrogates the custom of liturgical East facing during consecration. So it's still on point. Uh, I never saw any of the worst innovations in that document. Um, but it, the same thing would hold, Phil, for even um, if there were vagaries, you would just go and you'd say, okay, a vagary doesn't mean that we just side with the revolutionaries. Vagaries mean we have to go check what was the original public meaning of those terms that all of the people on the fence ratified because they were convinced using the primary meaning, the main, the original public meaning at the time. That's actually what gets locked in place is the meaning that all those ratifiers ratified. Nothing else makes sense. Intentionalism doesn't make sense because it's whose intention, you know? I think you should give Scalia another look. Uh, oh, I've given, <laughs> yeah, I don't, okay. I, I don't want to go too far down the constitutionalism uh, path here because you're writing a book about it. I teach a course about it. It's, uh, and as you say, most, most Catholics don't think about it. And these are constitutions, you're right from Vatican II, but that's not generally, we don't think of them in a way analogous to the way we think of the US constitution. If what you're saying is uh, that Sacrosanctum's Concilium does not support what you see on Sunday in a typical parish, well, then you're absolutely right. Uh, sure. We have, sure. we have two problems here. One is, are there any teachings of Vatican II that need to be clarified or corrected? And the other is, uh, are there developments that came in the wake of Vatican II that have nothing to do with what was authorized by the council? And the answer to the second is just unquestionably yes. Of course. Yeah, but in the first part of our talk, um, it seemed you were saying you called them time, time bombs or landmines or, or something like that, that yes. were um, constructive. I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't thinking actually of Sacrosanctum Concilium when I was, uh, when I was saying that, but um, offhand, I can't think of anything that I would characterize as a time bomb in that document. Yep. Uh, and in fact, that's one of the things that I think uh, we've been robbed. Uh, because there was a possibility of a liturgy, uh, of a liturgical development, an organic liturgical development that could have taken place in the 60s. Right. Uh, with the guidance of the councils. Right. And did not take place. And now that well has been poisoned so that uh, if you think that the liturgy of the 50s could have been improved, and I was around in the 50s, and I do, uh, we missed the opportunity. At, at this point, it's, it's not going to happen in our lifetime. Well, so what, no, I, 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 I got no problem with any of that. What I'm saying is when we, I, I think that just the way that we 
we need to clarify the way as TLM loving Catholics that we typically speak and think about this. The problem is clear. Raymond Arroyo said this a couple months ago after Traditionis Custodis came out. And it's just not often said. Really, the problem is the uh, missile of of Paul VI and you know what was going on with Bunini and the the concilium, the the you know congressional yes. subcommittee, if you will, that that translated the document. So when Francis, we don't even know what he thinks at any nuanced level of this, even this level of granularity. When Francis says, "Oh, we need to defend Vatican II," it's like, "Yeah, yeah, defend defend Sacrosanctum Concilium. That's 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 all we need. We just need if we see a a a, ver, a, a textualist read of Sacrosanctum Concilium, that just means the clear original public meaning of those words. If we saw that instantiated, it would be a a, a mass that looks ninety percent like the um, Tridentine uh, Latin Mass." And maybe with some some improvements, and I'm not someone I'm not some trad that's allergic to those little improvements. But it would basically be a, a deferring to the preferences of all the traditionalists out there because it would have all the key stuff. That's right. So, so that, that's I just think that's so when we're talking, Vatican II has nothing to do with the new mass. I would even go so far as to say because when we talk about the new mass, the clown masses. You know, we're talking about this mass that was given to us in 1970, and it really made obfuscations. It made uh, omissions. It directly contradicted Sacrosanctum Concilium in some places. So I think this is where this is where Catholics who don't know the granular level of what was going on 1963 to 1965, 1965 to 1968 with Bunini at all. I think it's confusing for them, right? Because they really think that the the, the new mass was given directly by Vatican II, and it, it was not. Oh, absolutely so I, not. No, yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I'm I'm coming to understand where I'm getting the picture of what you're saying, and I think I'm pretty much in agreement with you. Yeah, I mean, at risk of going back to the Constitution thing, you know, the 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 Americans who got together in Philadelphia in 1787 were supposed to be improving the Articles of Confederation. And they came, agreed. Agreed. They yeah. came away with something entirely different. Illegally, uh, yeah. Hey, look, I'm an anti-federalist through and through. I'm just saying, textualism. Well, yeah. One way or another, I, I it happened. And, yeah. and Bunini, pretty much the same. His his commission uh, authorized to implement Sacrosanctum Concilium uh, came away with something quite different. Yeah, uh, and. And that somehow got ratified, but it's not there in the document. Agreed. Yeah. Look, I, uh, yeah, <laughs> just for, for, for posterity's sake, because this is recorded and going out and it's <laughs> staying somewhere on a cloud somewhere. Uh, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a big supporter of the Articles of Confederation. I, as a matter of fact, uh, if you read the, the anti Federalist papers, which I'm, I'm sure you have, Phil, particularly Brutus, right, in his third, fourth, sixth letters. Um, those were legitimate time release time bombs in the U.S. Constitution. You could see at the time the anti-federalists like Brutus and Cato and Federal Farmer were calling them out at the time, and they were vindicated, not to mention the fact that um, they illegally changed the Articles of Confederation, which needed unanimity to be amended. And what the first thing they did at Philadelphia was they shuttered the windows and they, they set out to illegally presenting this secretly authored new document that had not been unanimously 
amended. So, you know, defense of the idea that constitutional ratification means group authorage, which requires the original public meaning of text is not some sort of endorsement on my part of the, the federal constitution over the Articles of Confederation, because I want the Articles of Confederation. I'm just saying textualism has to be in at least the restrictive ways that I've talked about it. Um, the one true, just ontologically, natural law, it has to be the one true way to think about what it means when three guys get together and they say, we don't have, we don't have a document. We're trying to ratify a document um, unless two of them sign it. It has to be, okay, they're signing words. If they use the word gay, they, they're locked, they're time locked into you know, what all those material terms meant at the time they signed. If later the term gay means the opposite of what it did when they signed it, they didn't somehow, uh, you know, sign their name to something that they couldn't possibly have intended. Uh, that, that's, all I've, that's all I've been pointing out. And, and it's really particularly relevant when we consider the fact that, that uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium was ratified and made into a thing, you know, verified as a true Catholic document seven full years before we got the new mass and that the new mass does not conform to Sacrosanctum Concilium. So I, I, I thought, I think, I think we're agreeing on this stuff. It's like, yeah, Look, we're, we're, we'll have to have a separate argument about the Constitution and the Federalists and Anti-Federalists, but that's that that's a wormhole, I think, for the discussion we're having today. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but I mean, can we at least agree that th th no no one likes the new mass? No one that 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 you know, I mean, almost no one likes the new mass better than the TLM. There might have been some third option sacrosanctum concilium option which if it had been faithfully translated into a faithful new mass it might have been better than the tlm or the novus ordo and it would have looked 90 percent like the tlm but given the fact that we weren't given that we were given an imposter that does not come from vatican ii we agree right it's either go back to the tlm or just less problematically because that would be kind of like undoing the work product of a council Let's just undo the, the iteration of Sacrosanctum Concilium, which has proven to be unfaithful, given to us by Bunini and, and Pope Paul VI. What about that? Oh, that would be wonderful. Uh, but I don't see it happening. In any, I mean, there are several things going on here. You know, uh, again, I was old enough to remember uh, when the new mass was introduced. And it was introduced by a priest who told us, this is what you wanted. Uh, and, and as I pointed out in another piece that, that that's what Ford Motor Company said about the Edsel told <laughs> consumers this is what you wanted uh, and it wasn't the Edsel wasn't what anybody wanted and the new mass wasn't it was not what the people in the pews wanted there there was no major upheaval calling for liturgical reform there were there were reformers but it was not a populist sort of movement and then another thing that I think is important to keep in mind is that there are a lot of good priests celebrating the Novus Ordo with reverence. Yeah. yeah. And they have, uh, they're wonderful, God bless them, but they need to understand that they have an odd perspective because yeah. the mass that they celebrate is fine. You know, and it, there are no abuses because they are not abusers, uh, but that's not true for us. Right. The lay people, uh, we don't get to celebrate the mass according to 
our own particular likes and dislikes. And in fact, that was something that dawned on me and it was sort of the aha moment for me was when someone pointed out, I think it was Peter Kowasniewski, uh, that the reverent mass that we're in search of in the Novus Ordo, yeah, that's an option. That's one of the many options. You can do a clown mass, you know, you can do a, a, a whatever, <laughs> roller skate mass, or you can do a reverent mass. Well, something's really wrong when you have that degree of variety, you know, from reverent to totally irreverent and blasphemous. Wait, just for clarity's sake, you're saying a roller skate mass is not reverent, right, Phil? Uh, yeah, I'm judgment. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a fair statement. Uh, yeah, no, it, it, I like the analogy. It would be a little bit like me saying, uh, well, I love my kids. I love my kids so much. And I, I, I've, I would never, ever abuse my kids. I, I die before I do this. I, I take this is my, my sole charge from God or my highest charge from God. I would never do that. Therefore, there are no abusive fathers out there in any of the households because I don't. This is a little bit what the defensive, good, goodly Novus Ordo priests say in their defense of the Novus Ordo, right? It's like, everyone's like, well, we don't get to live in your household, dude, <laughs> you know? Right. Or, or if you said, since you are kind to your children, uh, you've never seen abuse. Well, right. that doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. And I have seen it. But we all have. That's that's the thing. They won't listen to these voices crying out, seemingly from the wilderness. That is like, look, this is what ninety-eight. I'm being conservative here. Ninety-eight percent of the masses are, and and I know just like you because I travel a lot. And on Sundays, there's a ubiquity to the uh, low-level abuses. I, I don't. I don't. I've never seen a roller skate. Uh, or like beer and pizza mass that, that are fabled and are talked about. But I see the same repackaged low-level abuses wherever I go. I, and we take, we take car trips. We, we get in the RV when I go speak somewhere or we go on vacation. And it's the same thing around the country. Like, how, how did this happen? I, I just, I just like to, I'd like to pick your brain on this for a second. I call it binder drop theory. That, so the, the, like 1963, Second Sanctum Concilium comes out. Seven years later, the new mass comes out. The new mass doesn't con conform much to Sacrosanctum Sanctum Concilium at all. And yet all of its disconformities are ubiquitous. How the heck does that happen? That's like, I'm a substitute teacher in a classroom uh, at 2.59, right before school lets out, every kid in the room, in this middle school room, drops his binder exactly at the turn of 2.59. What I would think, because I have half a brain, it's maybe not a full brain sometimes, but half a brain, is, oh, there was some prior agreement, you know, some sort of taken off the record agreement between these middle school kids to do a binder drop at 259. That's basically the only way it could have happened. I didn't assume it's a coincidence. Another thing these Novus Ordo priests who are goodly men and goodly priests are guilty of is they're essentially saying that it's a coincidence that 99% of the Novus Ordos are binders dropping to the floor all at once. And that's just not plausible. Right. We're back to that picture that I tried to trace uh, for Philip Trower's picture of the men pushing the car and two of them want to push it over the cliff. And the other two suddenly realize what's going on and are pushing frantically, trying to get it to safety. Yeah. Uh, 
there obviously were people in the church, including some at the council, who were saying, here's this document, let's use it in this way. And it didn't matter what the words of the document said. Another point I was going to make just regarding your last point, uh, nobody likes the Novus Ordo. Everybody would prefer some changes. Uh, there are people, lots of people who don't like the TLM. Most of them have never been to a TLM, yeah. uh, but they've heard the propaganda and the propaganda has been powerful. And it's been, you know, it's been 30, 40, 50 years of propaganda telling us that the Novus Ordo, I mean, sorry, the TLM is boring and the priest is facing away from the people and you don't understand the language. And uh, we aren't hearing the same level of propaganda about the failures and, and uh, negatives of the Novus Ordo. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I, I guess in, in some, I try to get myself into some 1963 mop top, you know, Beatles loving mindset. It, it's a psyop, right? Like what no one in any other generation kids, middle-aged people, old people expect adoration to be fun in the same sense of going to a basketball game or a theme park. So when they say it's boring and I, this is this, I, I just feel like it's some sort of um, generational key phrase that was used at the time to signal to a certain audience, a certain set of concepts. And I'm like, well, I mean, you don't go to mass to be entertained that's that's and i i know you're you're not saying that uh you of all people aren't saying that but it's like i thought growing up with the novus ordo this is not only boring but it's also ridiculous it's boring and ridiculous and uh you know the the the, the, the cantors the ridiculous warbling voices the ridiculous songs that alone seems manufactured to create a kind of boring ridiculousness. And I, I still think that to this day. So when you go to the TLM, you're like, well, I mean, this isn't like going on a roller coaster. It's a different thing. It's, it's um, you know, the, the purpose is the, the bloodless sacrifice and the real telos is the Eucharist. So yeah. it's enlivening in that way, but there's nothing ridiculous about it. <laughs> That's what you can always say about the TLM to anyone, even those who don't like it. There's nothing silly about this. It's all deadly serious. Well, <laughs> I have to tell you, uh, in my youth, I heard the warbling voices in the TLM. Uh, you know, that's, but that's external. I think your fundamental point is right on, that the TLM tells you implicitly, uh, this is not about you. And for that matter, it's not about the priest. It's about our Lord and his sacrifice. And... I don't think there are many people who go to the to mass uh, to the Novus Ordo looking to be entertained, but they are all too often thinking this is about me. The point is, how does it make me feel? And um, and that is not the point of the mass. It's not all about you. It's not about how you feel. That's secondary consideration at, at best. It's about the Lord's sacrifice. I'm just curious what so what what's the distinction if it's not that they're it's not supposed to be unboring how does it make them feel because I, I picked this up in second grade you know second third fourth grade I was becoming an atheist just because of the 
ridiculousness because of the way that the Novus Ordo made me feel, made me feel like this is not serious, made me feel like the Eucharist I'm being told in class at Catholic school is the real presence of Christ, but no one here is regarding it that way. So is that the feeling that, that all of these um, people in, in certain generations were seeking? What, what feeling were they chasing? Or what feeling are they chasing if they like the Novus Ordo? They don't believe in the Eucharist. So what, what, affirm, what things are they getting out of it, the people they go? What, what do you think? Well, you'd have to talk to them. But my suspicion is um, that, first of all, there are a lot of people who are, who are seeking the same thing that you and I are seeking and are doing whatever they have to do, uh, what William F. Buckley called intellectual yoga or something to, to drown out uh, the, the noise. Uh, but then I think there are a lot of people who are seeking some sort of uplifting community experience. They, they feel good, they feel they're attached to something spiritual. It, it seems to me it's kind of vague, but again, you'd really have to talk to them. I don't, I don't know what they're thinking or what yeah. they're feeling or what they're looking for. All right. So in, in closing, can I just say one one. more thing? And maybe they're looking for what they've been told to look for. You know, if they're listening to the homily and the homily is about how we, we should be kind to each other. uh, And they think, gee, that's great. We should be kind to each other. And so they come out thinking be kind, which is not a bad thing, but it's not the Catholic faith. My, my homily here at the local Novus Ordo, 90 seconds from my, my house in Hattiesburg, the local kind of celebrity priest is, has been, um, you know, on, on Sundays where I'm stuck there and I can't get to uh, New Orleans for the Latin mass has been about how Jesus is wrong about, you know, divorce, uh, you know, about divorce being impermittable, in, 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 uh, things like that. So often, and, and that's what it was often uh, by, by kind of renegade, ubiquitous renegade uh, priests who like to say the Novus Ordo is just, they'll emit uh, man from the creed and they'll just say for us and for our salvation, or they'll, they'll often water down Jesus. They'll call the people of the old Testament uh, sexists. They'll, you know, many, many Novus Ordo uh, it's actually bracketed in the Novus Ordo missile to get rid of Ephesians five things like that. That's most often what I associate with a Novus Ordo homily is some low level unstated apostasy. And um, of course, this doesn't speak to the many good priests that do say the TLM, uh, many by absolute number, not by portion. But uh, th- th- there's, there's a real danger there because most people listen more to the homily than any other part of them. Most of the uninitiated Catholics listen more to the homily than they quiet their heart and listen at the consecration. Um, so what's the solution, Phil? Take us out on that point. What, what should we hope for? I wish I knew the answer. What's the solution? I, I see a long-term solution. Um, I think that regardless of traditionis custodis, there is going to be a growing interest in and movement toward the traditional liturgy. I think it's inevitable. Um, I think that the same way I think that the prediction of Pope Benedict before he was Pope is accurate, that we will yeah. be a smaller church, but a more muscular and more determined church. Um, how we get from here to there, I honestly don't know. As I say, the reform of the reform is dead in the water. Something else has to happen. I, I suppose here's what I hope happens. I hope enough bishops uh, get up on their hind legs 
and say, I am not a branch manager. I am a successor to the apostles. I am responsible for the souls of the people in the diocese. I say, uh, we can't suppress what is a small but very energetic and productive minority just because they're in the way of the majority. Uh, and I hope enough bishops will rally uh, around to, to reverse what has become a really destructive trend coming out of Rome. I think, let me, let me say this. I think too often TLM lovers like yourself and myself have characterized the reform of the reform as some sort of workaround and the most direct solution to the problem being just returning to the unmitigated, you know, 1962 missile. I think it's the other way around, though. I think I, I don't, you know, Benedict the 16th, I, 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 for my part, say failed us. The reform of the form was creeping, slow, ineffectual. I don't see uh, alongside you why it needs to be over forevermore. I take the view that the most direct approach to correcting the Vatican II document, like all Vatican, like all ecumenical councils, I see as sovereign in its way. And what's not sovereign is the particular construction of it given by Bunini and Pope Paul VI. So if one's, one's a mountain peak, one's a little hill. If we're going to get around something, I say the true reform of the reform would be let's go to Sacrosanctum Concilium and reimagine that. I, I, I mean, and reimagine the instantiation of that. I don't, so do you, do you see what I'm after here? It's that the most direct way of solving the problem is not actually just having two forms of the one right. And we have 22 or 23 other rights and all of them are unitary. They only have one right. It was always funky. And I think an ineffectual workaround to have a Novus Ordo and a TLM. I say we need Sacrosanctum Concilium. The mass will basically be the TLM if, if you do it according to the text. It, it'll have maybe some changes. Um, even you, Phil, said that, that the mass of the 1950s could have used a couple enhancements. I'm fine with that. Make them what the trads call organic enhancements, though I don't, I'm not sure that analogy holds up so well. But make them small. I think that's all they really mean. Is small enhancements. It'll be 90% the TLM. Um, we're not undoing, you know, one of the 21 ecumenical councils or anything like that. We're literally doing the 21st ecumenical council's main work product, Sacrosanctum Congilium, and not pretending that it never happened. And we're getting rid of the indirect uh, solution to the problematic, which is having two forms of one right. I, I think that's what has to die. What do you say? You think, you think we can continue to have two forms of the Latin rite? Not in the long run, no. I, I, what you just said, I agree with. If you want to write it up as a constitution, I'll ratify it. But there would, there would just be the two of us. And uh, I just don't see how that's likely to happen in the near future. I, I agree with you. That is the best solution. Uh, go back to the council, go back to the documents, make the liturgy accord with Sacrosanctum Concilium, I don't think you're going to have a whole lot of support from traditionalists there because they have been burned so many times uh, that at this point they are suspicious of any change whatsoever. Uh, and uh, 
that's the traditionalists and they're, they're in a minority. Uh, I think the majority would, would be just opposed. Yeah, no, I'm not looking for support from, from any, any one special interest group uh, and traditionalists fall into that category. I just, I literally mean as a kind of, it might not happen, but if, if it happened, it would be unfailing. Uh, hypothetical. It's just, this is, this is the weight of the truth. The truth is, it, it really sticks out like a sore thumb to have two forms of any one right. The workaround, contrary to the way traditionalists have always characterized it, is let's actually get Sacrosanctum Concilium ratified by their hero, Lefebvre. You know, he, he wasn't a modernist. I would never say he was a modernist. He, he ratified it because the four corners of the document were fine and didn't represent any kind of liturgical revolution. Let's get back to that. I can't do anything. I'm a layman. I'm not saying you can either, but the other solution is just sit around and wait for Francis before he dies. He is going to, I think from the opposite end, from the opposite angle, he's going to get rid of the TLM. So that's no solution either. We're not, Francis is moving to get rid of the TLM. So he's moving us back to a unitary form of the Roman right anyway. So I don't see that as offering any, any kind of respite. He's going to get rid of it. And, and, you know, with the strike of a pen, he can force the bishops to get rid of it. So I, I see a re-envisioned uh, reform of the reform is the only real solution for a traditionalist anyway. That'll force them. Yeah, well, I just say, uh, I don't think Pope Francis can, with the strike of, the, of a pen, abolish the TLM, but we'll see. I think that's going to be tested. Uh, but... I agree with you, as I say, uh, and not only do I agree with you that this is the best solution, I, uh, I believe that it is what's going to happen in the long run. I just have trouble seeing how we're going to get from here to there. Yeah. When you say you don't think you can, you mean there's some sort of uh, magisterial, you know, ancient, like the ancient English constitution saying that he can't do that. There's nothing... Nothing that I've ever seen that says he can't do that, especially when we come off of Vatican one. Right. Again, this is why constitutionalism is always the thing is like, well, what would block him? He's I think Francis is evil. I know he hates the TLM and those of us who love the TLM. And I think this is where he's moving to go from traditionis uh, on July 16th to the so-called dubia in uh, whenever that was December. I think there's a progression. I think he's going to... Oh, no question. Yeah. 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 So what, what would block him from doing it at this point? Uh, whether canonically or theologically, um, I think there are arguments to be made that the, there's a limit to what the Pope can do uh, to upset tradition. Sure. But where... Because Catholics are... Um, we, we'll have to talk about constitutions in some other, uh, some other form because we're closing this out. But since it is part of the last shot, Catholics are simultaneously very allergic to the idea of a constitution, a, a big kind of write out of what can and can't be done by, by your governing structure here, sacred governing structure, the magisterium. They're simultaneously a, averse to that, but they're always saying, oh, we'll consult this. The, the, the Pope can't do this. And canonically, you know, the Pope can change canon. So it would have to be theologically um, then there would have to be some document where we're, we're, as we're always telling the Muslims and the Protestants, it's like, well, we're a magisterial faith, right? Everything's, everything's written down, everything's uh, notified and codified. So where, where does it say that the Pope 
couldn't do that. I've never seen any, any ecumenical council or any uh, ex cathedra statement by the Pope, by one Pope about other Popes that they can't do. No, that. no, no. It would have to be, it would have to be repudiated by bishops. Uh, and because the Pope has to teach in, in communion with the body of the College of Bishops and it would have to be repudiated, which would happen only if he were very clear about what he's doing. His modus operandi has been to be unclear what he's doing. You know, yes. you're right. He can rewrite canon law whenever he wants to. He prefers to ignore canon law and do what he wants to do in violation of it. Right. But, but, but we're in agreement. Vatican I, he's, you know, first, first of all the bishops, right? He can... He can, the Pope can, as Bishop of Rome, when he wants, he can boss around all the other bishops and he can say, hey, with regard to this, boom, he just, this, this Pope has, has dallied and dithered in the ranks of uh, weaponized ambiguity. Yes. Uh, is, is that what you're saying? And so you don't think he's ever going to be so direct? It's not exactly. so much that he couldn't, it's that he wouldn't, more like? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, I hope that's true. And we can continue... Uh, uh, sort of toiling in bimodalism, liturgical bimodalism. But um, I think he's actually going to, before he dies, I, my theory is he's going to perfect this thing and is going to for, force us off of the bimodalism anyway. So I'm always like, let's just do the chutzpah version of what, what Benedict XVI wanted to do, which was give us basically the TLM with some amendments, which is what allegedly Sacrosanctum Concilium was anyway. What what a tangle, Phil. But the point is, I'm linking your article. It was an excellent article. People that defend the Novus Ordo Mass as a as an affirmatively good thing need to go read your article, which really was uh, clever, clever from first to end, and and true, not just clever, but true. Who denies the Novus Ordo is valid? Prepare for a surprise. You wrote it, um, you know, almost three weeks ago now. Um, but it's an excellent mass. Most people that go to the Novus Ordo deny the validity of the Novus Ordo. Parting shots, Phil? <laughs> no, I mean, I've, it's an interesting conversation. Uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to take up the Constitution, the American Constitution some other time, but um, I agree with you. As I say, uh, the reform of the reform is where I want to be. Uh, and if there is a path, I don't see it. Well, personnel is policy. And so present, presently, there doesn't seem to be, but there doesn't seem to be a path to reasonably defending the TLM, the unadorned TLM either. There's, there's no path for anything. Francis is, uh, you know, the tyrant. And, and the mask is pretty much off now. And uh, there's no path for anything as long as he lives. No, but personnel is policy in another respect is that uh, the, the TLM is producing people are at least not losing people the way the Novus Ordo is. Sooner or later, bishops have to take into account that there are some people who stay in the church, their children stay in the church. These are the future of the church. Uh, you've got to pay attention to that. And yeah. what do those people want? What are those people calling out for? That's not just a matter of satisfying public opinion. That's, that's a matter of safeguarding the future of the faith. Agreed. Agreed. And good word. I, I would say that um, lots of jurisdictions reported after July the 16th that they were losing people, uh, TLM jurisdictions, meaning, you know, the Ecclesia Dei institutions, FSSP, ICK, uh, diocesan Latin mass, were losing people who are going to SSPX and SSPV. 
So that there's, there's attrition there as well. Um, they, they were, those groups were kind of making hay after, uh, they're kind of making, making, uh, opportunistic hay out of, uh, July 16th of this past year, which was a shame. So anyway, uh, thanks a million for writing the article, Phil, and thanks for being with me. People out there, remember, uh, go to timothyjgordon.com. Classes begin in two weeks. There's a constitution class opening. There's a Latin, a second semester of Latin opening, and there's an exciting Tolkien course those three are taught live opening. And also we have a register of seven or eight other courses which can be purchased um, that, that are not live. They're pre-recorded. Go to timothyjgordon.com. Like, subscribe, click the bell, leave a comment. God bless you all. And thanks for watching. Des Volt. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. That was fun.